welcome to the Theology Podcast, and uh, we are podcasting once again uh, to you uh, from a pub, but we're not in the corner pub in West Hartford, Connecticut today. We are instead in Illicit Brewing in Manchester, Connecticut, the hometown of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. And uh, we just thought it would be fun to try out another place uh, for a change. I, I do kind of think, guys, that they're getting a little sick of us over at the Corner Pub. I, I get some dirty looks every once in a while. I'm just joking. <laughs> but maybe not. Anyway. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the fact of the matter is, is the gang's all here plus one. Uh, we've got my son, Caleb Wiley, who's uh, visiting for Thanksgiving from Nashville. Say hello, Caleb. Hey, everybody. Hey, all right. So Caleb is actually a sound engineer, and so he's here to help us save the show from, from us, <laughs> from me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, why don't we introduce ourselves? Tom, why don't you start? I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian and uh, ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I must ask you all to, uh, to bear with me. I'm, I'm under the weather, and my voice is quite telling about that. So. If you hear weird squeaks and sounds, that's, that's, that is I. <laughs> and I'm Glenn Sunshine, a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And just to clarify, illicit brewing is spelled with an E, right. not an I. <laughs> so let, let, let's be clear here. So today uh, is my day, and as I noted, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester <laughs> in Manchester, Connecticut, where Illicit Brewing uh, is fortunate to have its business. And uh, I'm the author of uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. But today is my day, and the, and the theme uh, of the day is the Shakers. The Shakers, that, that goofy group that uh, has uh, kind of become synonymous with really nice furniture, or really kind of cool folk furniture and stuff like that. Now, the Shakers, uh, the reason why I have been inspired to, to reflect on the Shakers with the folks in podcast land is uh, I just read a, an article uh, published by uh, Commonweal, the liberal Catholic publication, and uh, it was more or less a requiem to the Shakers. Uh, the Shakers are down to two people, both well up there in years, and they're in Maine. And uh, this is a far cry from, you know, the Shakers in their heyday. In their heyday, between the years about 1820 to 1860, there were about 6,000 Shakers uh, in about 20 communities around the United States. Now, the Shakers have always been uh, a subject of interest uh, for me since my days in seminary. I took a course in uh, a, uh, something called, I took a course entitled uh, American Cults and Sects. And in that, in that uh, course, uh, there was a, uh, we screened a documentary uh, by Ken Burns of all people before he did his thing on the Civil War and on baseball and jazz and whatever other thing he, he, you know, he's done a documentary, he did something on the Shakers. And you can still watch it. It's, it's on, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. You can go to, directly to PBS and watch it there. And I think it's uh, in a series called The American Experience. And the title of the documentary is Hands to Work, Hearts to God. 
Hmm. It's a very touching treatment. Uh, you can really see Burns' affection for the Shakers in this. It's not at all dismissive. I mean, it gets into some of the some of the you know sort of impractical uh, sort of features of the Shaker movement, and we'll get into that in a minute. But it's uh, it's endearing. And so when I saw that, I was taken by the the you know the presentation. And when my wife and I moved back to New England. Uh, we had opportunities to visit Shaker villages. So we've been to the, you know, and at this point they're just kind of museum pieces. You know, each one of them is, uh, the ones that remain anyway, uh, have a foundation or some kind of fundraising apparatus to keep it in good, keep them in good repair. And you can take tours of right. these places. So there's, you know, here in Connecticut we have one in Enfield. Yeah. Um, you get up into New Hampshire, uh, Canterbury, I think, uh, up in New Hampshire, uh, that's a, a really marvelous one, but the best one I've been to is in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, out in the Berkshires. Uh, I believe it's the, the Hancock, let me just make sure I've got that right, Hancock Village, Shaker uh, community. I've got the, I wanna make sure I get that right just because it's uh, such a marvelous facility. It'd be nice for people to visit it if they can get there. Yeah, Hancock, the, Han the Hancock Shaker Village. That, by the way, is where the uh, stone round barn, the famous round barn that uh, sometimes people see whenever the Shakers are, you know, uh, talked about on television or whatever. Anyway, so what is, you know, the Shaker movement? Before I get into that, I'd like to see if you guys have any impressions of, Shaker, of the Shakers and, and what, you know, their legacy has been, you know, or what their contribution to the American, to American history has been, or just, uh, just the, the, the fact that they've been a kind of oddity that maybe you've been aware of. Do you guys have any thoughts about the Shakers? Yeah, they've, uh, they've always, um, I'm hardly an expert on this. I mean, anything after 1648 is in history, it's journalism as far as I'm concerned, um, <laughs> you know, current events. Right. But, but um, they they always strike me as being something of an uh, you know an obviously an oddity. Uh, they do some really interesting things in terms of their community life. They're best known, as you say, for their their uh, craft work, which is brilliant stuff. It's it's incredibly elegant, and um, you know it's really very nice. But as a as a religious movement, there are a number of things that I'm sure we'll get into that it always struck me as being um, really pretty seriously French. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So, have you had any impressions of the Shakers' time? Uh, <clears throat> I think similar to Glenn. I mean, I think that it, most of what I've had is just impressionistic. I haven't had a lot of familiarity with them, but it, you know, I've, you know, um, what I'm aware of is sort of, you know, these kind of charismatic aspects, um, communal aspects, right, right. utopian aspects, and uh, yeah. you know, this, you know, ascetical life. Um, you know, stuff, stuff you'll get into, but it, it really has to do with, uh, a, you know, a distinct religious form that, in some cases, is very extreme. You don't really see how this movement could continue to go on. Right. Apart from, you know, a lot of conversions. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we'll yeah. get into the reason for that. Yeah. And a lot of systematic evangelism, which they don't do. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and, and in their heyday, they were actually sort of riding the coattails of the Second Great Awakening. 
you know, when they got their start, they were on the tail end of the first Great Awakening, and then when they were really in their growth mode, they were riding the coattails of the second Great Awakening. So they, they were actually taking advantage of this sort of heightened sort of enthusiastic yeah. right enthusiasm for religious themes in general in America so they weren't really digging it out you know yeah. they weren't they weren't setting up yeah. you know you know missions in the tough part of town yeah yeah that kind of thing if in a sense they were sort of taking the easy pickings and you know yeah. that had been you know, made possible because of yeah. the really, you know, the circuit riders or yeah. the farmer preachers or yeah, those sure. guys who were doing the tough work on the frontier. Hmm. So um. let's not oversell <laughs> their evangelistic appeal because yeah. right. yeah. I think that that was important to, to, as, a, as sort of a prerequisite. Yeah. Second Great Awakening would be worth a show or two. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when you think about the Second Great Awakening, you can say, yeah, I can see how the Shakers could take advantage of that. Yeah. And, you, and you did have, especially in the U.S., this enlightenment country, yeah. which freed people from their ties to former places. You had a lot of these movements take footholds. Yeah. You know, the Dunkers coming out of the, yeah. the, the German, of the Quakers. The, yeah. The, yeah. You know, you had these, and they would have a type of attraction um, because people started to, to be willing to sort of shed off some of what they they took with them from from other uh, from countries they left. And yeah, and the, the Ken's Bur Ken Burns documentary actually gets into that. It's a, it's very well done in the sense they bring in some historians and some some theologians hmm. to explain the the appeal hmm. of the movement and its and you know sort of the reasons for its success, and they and they get into that. They hmm. uh, uh, say you know this is the land of zero, hmm. you know, this is the land of the fresh start. Now. Yeah. Actually, that's not true. Anyone yeah. who's read Russell Kirk knows that's not true. <laughs> but nevertheless, that's the myth. Yeah. Now, what I want to do is just provide a quick uh, sort of summary of you know who the Shakers were and their, the nature of their, their their start, just so that people can have uh, that in their minds as we talk about some of the more quirky aspects of mm -hmm. the movement. So this is taken from Wikipedia. That. That, that marvelous resource that has put a lot of encyclopedists out of work, you know, around the, around the world. And you know it's got to be right if it's in Wikipedia. And that's a joke. But I, I do think, mo I'd say, you know, you can give them benefit of the doubt like 95% of the time. So uh, let me just read. Now, the, the, the uh, treatment of the Shakers in Wikipedia is pretty lengthy. Yeah, you know, I, I, I printed out 13 pages. Uh, but I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to read, uh, uh, you know, a few paragraphs, uh, and we can take it from there. So this is the uh, this is the introduction. The United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, that's a mouthful, <laughs> was commonly known as the Shakers. That's the name that stuck. It is a millenarian, non-trinitarian, restorationist Christian sect founded circa 1747 in England, and then organized in the United States in the 1780s. They were initially known as Shaking Quakers because of their ecstatic behavior during worship services. And you thought Pentecostalism had its start at Azusa Street in Los Angeles. No. Uh, espousing egalitarian ideals, Women took on spiritual leadership roles alongside men, including founding leaders such as Jane Wardley, Mother Anne Lee, we're gonna get back to her, and Mother Lucy Wright. The Shakers emigrated from England and settled in revolutionary colonial America 
with an initial settlement in uh, Watervliet, New York, uh, present-day Kauli, I guess that's how it's pronounced, C-O-L-O-N-I-E, in 1774. So this is a little, this is, this is auspicious, and they got their start during the American Revolution, and they're dying out today. I don't know if that says something about our country. <laughs> but anyway, it's a nothing, if it's nothing more, it's an intriguing uh, coincidence. They practice, they practice, notice the present tense, because at this point there are two still remaining. Uh, they practice a celibate and communal lifestyle. I don't know how communal you can be when it's just two people. Pacifism, uniform charismatic worship. Now there's an interesting phrase, uniform charismatic worship. And their model of equality of the sexes, which they institutionalized in their society in the 1780s. They are also known for their simple living, architecture, technological innovation, and furniture. Now, I think for most people, it's the furniture. You look at that furniture and you say, yeah, man, I want my kitchen with shaker cabinets, or I'd like to have a shaker rocking chair, that sort of thing. During the mid-19th century, the era of manifestations, that's in, that's in capitals, era of manifestations, resulted in a period of dances, gift drawings, and gift songs inspired by spiritual revelations. At its peak in the mid-19th century, there were four to 6,000 Shaker believers living in 18 major communities and in numerous smaller, often short-lived communities. External and internal societal changes in the mid to late 19th century resulted in the thinning of the Shaker communities as members left or died with few converts to the faith to replace them. By 1920, there were only 12 Shaker communities remaining in the United States, and at the present time, there, are only, there is only one active Shaker village, Sabbath Day Lake Shaker Village, which is located in Maine. Anyway, so that, that's the, the history of the Shakers. Now, one of the things I think uh, it's, is, you know, that I'd like to just also get into here a little bit is kind of the spiritual ethos of Shakerism, particularly at the start and during the era of manifestations. Because my sense is, as I've watched these documentaries and read a little bit about Shakers, somewhat like the Mormons, they've tried to downplay in the 20th century their distinctives, mm -hmm. trying to say, we're just Christians like everybody else, try to go mainstream. Sort of, but if you get back into the, you know, into the, you know, the 18th and the 19th centuries, you get some weird stuff going on, like Tecumseh showing up at Shaker, you know, worship gatherings, you know, uh, through, through a, a spirit, as a spirit, and being, and being channeled by Shaker worshipers, that kind of, that kind of weird. So, you know, anyway, so let, let's, let's, uh, let's jump in to this. This is, again, taken from Wikipedia. Um, the beliefs were based upon spiritualism and included the notion that they received messages from the Spirit of God, which were expressed during religious revivals. Now, this is kind of in keeping with the Quaker, Quaker movement, you know, where Quakers would gather together and everybody, would, and there was no there was no clergy, there were no sacraments, just, just gather and then somebody would be moved by the Spirit and stand up and give, a, you know, an exhortation of some kind. Um, but anyway, they also experienced what they interpreted as uh, messages from God during silent meditations that became known as shaking Quakers because of the ecstatic nature of their worship services. They believed in the renunciation of sinful acts and that the end of the world was near. 
The meetings were first held in Bolton, not Bolton, Connecticut. This is Bolton, England, where the articulate preacher Jane Wardley urged her followers to, quote, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Where have I heard that before? (laughs) (laughs) The new heaven and the new earth prophesied of old is about to come. The marriage of the Lamb, the first resurrection, the new Jerusalem descended from above. These are even now at the door. And when Christ appears again and the true church rises in full and transcendent glory, then all anti-Christian denominations, the priests, the church, church capitalized, the Pope, will be swept away. Well, we know that they're definitely Protestants. But I have a feeling that they're so Protestant they would have felt the same way about the Church of England, probably about Presbyterians, anybody who's formal, you know, to the to the degree that uh, it would require them to keep quiet and, and settle down and, and listen to an ordained preacher who's been trained or whatever. Now, uh, Mother Ann Lee is the, the person that I think we can look to uh, to, to, to understand sort of the, the genesis of the American Shaker movement. Uh, Mother Ann Lee was from Manchester, England. She was a woman who uh, was unhappily married, had four children, all of, all of which, or all of whom died uh, in childhood. Uh, she uh, apparently had some very strong sort of, uh, of, she had a very strong aversion to sex. And that comes out later in her convictions about sex and sin. But uh, this particular thing uh, that we have here in Wikipedia, I think, is helpful to get a sense of you know what she was like. Ann Lee joined the Shakers by 1758, then became the leader of the small community. Mother Ann in quotes, as her followers later called her, claimed numerous revelations regarding the fall of Adam and Eve and its relationship to sexual intercourse. A powerful preacher, she called her followers to confess their sins, give up all their worldly goods, and take up the cross of celibacy and forsake marriage as part of the renunciation of all, quote, lustful gratifications, end of quote. She said, I saw in vision the Lord Jesus in his kingdom and glory who revealed to me the depth of man's loss, what it was and the way of redemption therefrom. Then I was able to bear an open testimony against the sin that is the root of all evil. And I felt the power of God flow into my soul like a fountain of living water. From that day, I have been able to take up a full cross against all the doleful works of the flesh. Now, what do you suppose she's talking about there? Sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, at its heart, I believe that the Shakers are a, a, a sort of very odd Gnostic movement. And, and I, what I want to kind of explore a little bit is the paradox of their Gnosticism. How is it possible for a woman like Mother Anne and her aversion to, to sex procreation to the household, to traditional family norms, uh, to the welcoming of new life into the world, uh, to the celebration of new life. How is it possible for a woman like this to generate a, you know, an enthusiastic response and 
and, and, and spur on them or create a movement of people who buy into this, mm. and then create such intriguing and really, I think, beautiful works of art. Not that she was an artist, but the yeah. people who followed her yeah. and followed the way of life that she laid out. Hmm. Any, any, any sort of initial thoughts on that? Now, what's interesting is if you compare this to ancient Gnosticism, there's a, one enormous difference, and that's that ancient Gnosticism came up um, in a period when, as near as I can tell, there's a, a sort of a broad level of anxiety and almost cultural despair going on. It's particularly, particularly true with a bit later groups like the Manichees, who are even more extreme. And yet the Manichees manage in short order to spread from China to the Atlantic Ocean. You know, and in a period of cultural, more or less cultural despair and breakdown and things like that, you can understand a retreat into asceticism and Gnosticism. But that doesn't really match what's going on in the 19th century in America. Yeah. And so what I'm wondering here is, you know, if you go into the Middle Ages, um, you start seeing movements toward apostolic poverty and things like that, only in the central Middle Ages when the society was growing in prosperity. And I've argued for a while that that's really a, uh, a reflection of salvation anxiety. You know, Jesus is blessed or the poor, and all of the other quotes, woe were you who are rich, woe to you who are rich. Yeah, I think I'll have some more beer. Um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, so they're looking at a society that's prospering, and they wonder what that means. You know, I'm, things are getting good, I'm, I'm doing well, does that mean I'm damned? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, almost all of your medieval heretical movements, quote unquote, not all of them were really heretical, but almost all of them center around the issue of wealth and poverty. So I'm wondering if maybe there isn't a parallel there in the 19th century as we're getting this intense burst of religiosity with the Second Great Awakening, if in the growing prosperity of the country there isn't a sense that, you know, what we really need to do is renounce this and, you know, store up our treasures in heaven. Right, right. That's a good thought. I mean, that's a fascinating thought. And, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the language of the Shakers, it is suffused with scriptural references, you know, references to, you know, the kingdom of God and to, you know, eschatological longings. And, you know, they, they do have material to work with. You know, Jesus did say that in the kingdom that, the, you know, giving in marriage, you know, marriage is, is something for this, this time that we find ourselves in. And even here, we've got some people who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Right, right. So we've got that. So what, what they have is a sort of over-realized eschatology. Yeah. I think it, its genesis is in her own sort of, I think, mental illness and sort of trauma. Uh, I think that her marriage was a very unhappy one. Uh, she's, she's suffered tremendous, tremendously through these pregnancies and through the deaths of these children. I'm assuming that she did her best for her children as a mother and they died for reasons unrelated to her. But anyway. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me on some level of Marjorie Kemp. Marjorie Kemp was a, actually the first woman who wrote an autobiography in English. Okay. And um, she was a medieval woman. She had something like 14 kids. And then she decided that God was calling her to celibacy. Huh. 
Uh, postpartum depression is clearly part of this. Right. Um, she was a, actually corresponded with Julian of Norwich, who I would describe as a genuine mystic. Marjorie right. was a mystic wannabe. Got you, got you. But she, you know, she has this obsession with celibacy, with, you know, that God has restored her virginity after seven, after 14 children. Right. You know, things like this. And it, 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 yeah. it seems that there may be a similar kind of dynamic going on here. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds reasonable to me. So anyway, in this, so in this trauma, you know, this, this, uh, this impet this sort of this uh, sentiment cre creates this, uh, I think, uh, uh, kind of chemical reaction, you could say, with certain passages of the Bible, and you end up with a, with a message that, particularly if you've, if you've got sexual anxieties or if you're afraid that maybe your sexual uh, appetites are, are, you know, things that just you can't live with that that are damning you you know if, particularly in this supercharged environment a spiritual uh, you know sort of interest in the in the country broadly speaking so you've got I think you've got that and then you know you've got this this appeal of a community that is you know later to develop it actually develops in the way that we think of the Shakers today long after Aunt Mother Anne is gone the people who follow her are the, are, the, are the people who, who prove to be the organizational geniuses. It's kind of like with Mormonism, again, you know, you got Joseph Smith, who's just kind of a nut job, and then you got Brigham Young, who comes along and just says, okay, here we go, this is how it's gonna work. Yeah. Now, interesting, Joseph Smith, it, it, I, I was just kind of thinking about the connection with, um, with Mormons here in Shakers. They're opposite sides of the same coin. I agree. You've got you've got you know a polygamy on one side. You've got celibacy on the other. I mean, you know, there there it's, it's are some difference between, between masculine yeah. gnosticism and feminine gnosticism. Sure. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And even in the ancient world, you had some gnostics who were complete libertines in terms right. of their behavior, and others that were ascetics. Right. Right. By the way, you know, I, I'm not the only person who thinks of, of Mormonism as a kind of gnostic movement. You know, uh, you know, Harold Bloom, the great Harold Bloom, you know, the author of the American Religion says they're Gnostics, they're Gnostics. And he was a self-proclaimed Gnostic, so I guess he's saying, I recognize a brother when I see him. <laughs> anyway, you have something you want to say well, there, Tom? I think, yeah, I think the conditions for uh, heightened spirituality were in place. And these movements arose with these distinct figures, and they're all trying to demarcate a certain, you know, authentic, um, otherworldly vision. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that they all are competing almost for a distinct form of um, religious life that intensifies what makes them different from the others yeah. here. And, and they all start in upstate New York. Yeah, I mean, yeah the Burnt Over District. There's yeah. this thing I mean, for a show. You, you, got, <laughs> you, got, you got the Mormons, you got the Shakers uh, who were there first. You have um, spiritualism. Uh, all of these these sort of fringe things that come up all come up in upstate New York, yeah. right in the area where the Second Great Awakening was at its you know, arguably its peak. Yeah, it wasn't Finney from there. Yep, Finney was in that area too. Yeah, and this this empirical manifestation of authentic you know, Christianity, if you will, they're all looking for you know something you can look at and say that's the marks of the real yeah, thing. That's right. That's yeah. right. And another element of the comparison with Mormonism is it's a little bit different, but 
in Joseph Smith, you have this idea of spiritual marriage where you and your wife are together going to be the gods of a new world that you are going to populate with your spirit children. And in Shakers, you have male and female as the two halves of God, or the two right. aspects of God. Yeah, and, and it came to be uh, believed that Mother Anne was the, f the female incarnation of Christ. Mm -hmm. So she was sec Christ's second appearing. Now, how this all works, mm -hmm. Christ marries himself, I, you know, I, just, I just don't get it. But it, I don't think you're supposed to. In fact, one yeah. of the things that Shakers were known for is sort of downplaying theology and sort of playing up practice to the point where it eclipses this should sound familiar, by the way. Uh, the idea that, you know, this sort of splitting of theological hairs is not worth the time. Let's just love each other and that yeah. kind of thing. And the, the um, heightened emphasis on feeling-based, yes. experience-based. That's right. Because That's a great leveler. I've got yeah. feelings just like you. Yeah, and that becomes the, you know, and the ones that, that come up with the greatest vision start to be the ones that are sort of followed. And like you said, it's hard to know the difference at some of these points between psychosis, delusional disorder, and demonic possession, for that matter, because right. they, they... Or, or flat-out charlatanism. That's right. That, yeah. I think that was another aspect. People yeah. were very aware of how they could play off the religiosity and religious sentiments of people and manipulate. Here, this is something I like to play out a little bit, sort of this idea that, that emotivism at one and sort of in one way is leveling. Yeah. We all have emotions. Yeah. I have my emotions, you have your emotions. Yeah. Like when we talk about the intellect, it's pretty clear that some people are more gifted than others. Yeah. Just allow people to talk for half a minute and you figure out, okay, yeah. I have a sense of just how sort of reasonable this person can be or whatever. But when it comes to emotions, you have your emotions, I have my emotions. But you also, at the same time, paradoxically, can have a hierarchy because those who feel more intensely can command more authority, particularly if they're, they've got an ability to sort of bring people into their emotional orbits. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, what you're dealing with is the classic definition of demagoguery. Yeah, yeah. The, the demagogue is the person who, in Aristotle, the danger of democracy, democracy is a degenerate form of government. Right. And the danger is the demagogue who is a person who will come along and sway the passions of the people so that they're ruled by their passions, not their reason. Right. And that person can then lead them by the nose wherever he wants to take them. Yep, yep. And you, you've got that as a part. You know, I think it was Groucho Marx who said, um, sincerity is the most important thing. If you can take that, you've got it made. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's... Bill Clinton was, in it, was a pro at that. Yeah, and you know, so it, it, whether you've got the experience or not, whether you have the intense emotion or not, if you can generate it in others, mm -hmm. you're the leader. Yep, yep, yep. And I've seen it again and again. So anyway, you know, with those things in mind, I'd like to step back a little bit and think a little bit about sort of the egalitarian sexless vision of Mother Anne. So within a Shaker community, you've got a very strict separation between men and women. Not only uh, is there no, you know, sexual contact, there's virtually no contact at all. Separate stairways, separate doorways very distinct uh, spheres of work. And this is where things get a little bit puzzling when you 
encounter the NPR crowd and their enamorment with the Shakers. Because if you go to like the Hancock Village in, in Massachusetts and you go into the museum that is sort of like, you know, the place that you begin the tour, there are all these luminaries, Yo-Yo Ma, Ken Burns, other people, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and all their quotes, you know, about, you know, the marvelous Shakers and their egalitarian, you know, manner of life. And, and you know their 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 feminism and all this and all this kind of stuff. Well, yes and no. Uh, what what you actually have are are men and women living in separate communities together. Yeah. So there's separate almost, but equal. That's that's, <laughs> 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 that's a good one. That's a good one. But anyway. <laughs> but you, it, with, so you, you've got this dynamic. Now, my thesis is that. Whenever you have people working together, hierarchies form. That's the way it has to be. Because Mother Anne could, and, I, and, and when you think about sexual, you know, the, the act of procreation, you know, when you talk about sex in a sort of strictly biological sense, you've got an actor and an act of the pond, right? That's, why, that's the way rape actually works, when it's, there's no consent. So, so there is a kind of implicit domination that doesn't necessarily have to have a negative connotation, but there's, a, there's an exercise of, and this is one of the reasons why power always has some kind of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, is, is somehow bound up with sexuality. You know, when we think about you know various perversions, sexual perversions, many times there's a there's an element of dominance and submission somehow related to that. So, because of that, I think that Mother Anne, even though she was probably nuts, was right. If you're going to have true equality, there can be no sex, and there can be no contact. Because anytime there is interaction, there's by nature a kind of structure that gets formed. So, for example, within Shakerism, you'll have eldresses, female elders, and elders, but their authority is only over their sex. So the eldress is not exercising authority over the brothers. It's the elders who are. So you have parallel communities. So I think she's right. I think she's right, but wrong at the same time. You see what I'm getting at? Well, I, I think the, the fundamental question here is what you mean by equality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if you mean, in some sense, interchangeable, if that's sort of the sense of equality that you've got, um, well, you don't even have that actually in a Quaker community, because, or a Shaker community, because each sex performs different roles, different uh, jobs in the community. So even there, you don't have exactly interchangeability. But you're getting close to it um, in, in the idea that that equality doesn't imply, on some level, a kind of differentiation, and especially not a hierarchy. So. Um, like when you yeah. like like one of the things that the Shakers were known for was their worship, and within the Shaker worship service in the in the mid 19th century there was dance. Mm -hmm. Now the dances were were fascinating 
because, again, the men danced with the men, the women danced with the women, and there were these sort of alternating movements where they would approach each other and then pull away. Inter there, were, there, were, there were concentric circles, so the women would move in a circle inward on the inside, moving in one direction, and the men would be on the outside moving counterclockwise. The, the artwork, so for example, during the era of manifestations, uh, a number of young women would, would were supposedly, and I, I actually own one of them, uh, I think it's uh, Hannah Calhoun, I, th I think that's the name of the artist, but she, uh, yeah, Cahoon. It's not Calhoun, it's Cahoon, Hannah Cahoon. Uh, there's, a, there's an image that we have uh, hanging over my wife's piano of, uh, you know, a print of one of her paintings. And in that painting, it's entitled The Tree of Life, and it's a beautiful painting. But as you look at the painting, it's clear that some of the fruit are male and the other fruit are female. There's seven of each, seven male fruit, seven female fruit, but the male fruit are dark green, almost like an olive green, and the female fruit are sort of a luminescent orange or bright orange. With my color vision, that is going to be a real problem. <laughs> <laughs> or lack thereof. But, but what you have here is, is uh, sort of an, an embrace of the male and female in terms of a formal sense. Because if you were to say, what would be sort of the traditional understanding of how the colors work, you know, sort of the bright luminescent would be more sort of the female color palette. The dark, heavy, you know, colors would be more the male color palette. I remember actually visiting a, 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 a marvelous mansion down in Newport, Rhode Island, on the mansion, you know, the, where you have got the mansion where the breakers, where the, you know, all the, the wealthy families would have their summer homes. And these homes are like palaces. <laughs> and then one of them was actually a, uh, uh, this was a house that was built, you know, sort of in the, in the aftermath of the, of the Second Great Awakening. And so there was a, there was a pious family but there was the, the female side of the house and the male side of the house. The female side of the house consisted of a sunroom, beautiful sunroom, with yellows and golds and oranges and reds in the tapestry and in the furniture, and the windows were large, and you know the light was just streaming in. And then the male side of the house consisted of walnut <laughs> paneling, dark green wallpaper, <laughs> shelves laden with books, big hearths where men would smoke cigars in leather chairs. <laughs> you know, there was a male side of the house and a female side of the house. And that was how the, kind of the, the Shaker communities looked. There was female work, there was male work, but they never interacted. Yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm still kind of dancing around. There's a definition of equality here that I can't quite pinpoint exactly what it is, but there, that's, I think, really where a, a lot of the fundamental problem lies. Um, equality Im doesn't imply sameness, it implies difference. And while they've got difference there, I'm not sure they've got it enough. Maybe that, that's it. I'm, I'm still trying to you know, kind of wrap my head around it. There's something in there that I think we need to, to tease out of it. Right. For me, you know, whenever you have any kind of functional community, there's hierarchy. Right. Yeah. So there's functional hierarchy with, with essential equality. And that's the sort of, that's the thing that traditionalists like us 
try to assert, you know, that just because there's functional hierarchy doesn't mean there's essential difference, you know, in terms of value. Women and men are equal in the eyes of God because they're both made in His image. But when it comes to actually making things work, there are tasks and roles that are distinct, and there's a sort of a necessary hierarchy that emerges. And the only way you get around that is if you play mental games, or you, or you uh, farm out, source, outsource all the, the sort of essential functional characteristics of the household to other organizations, and you turn the household into a recreation center. Because rec when, you're, when, you're, when you're recreating, there's no need to have, yeah. there's no, we're not do actually doing anything. <laughs> we're not yeah. doing anything constructive. There's yeah. no need for anybody to be in charge. We're just having fun. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, with those things in, in sort of in the background, what I like to think about now is what appealed to me about the Shakers. Because I actually find them in many respects very attractive. Now there are things about them that I find repellent. But the thing, I'd like to think a little bit about what I find attractive. And I think craftsmanship is, is definitely the thing. When you go to a Shaker community, you can't help but be impressed, especially if you have a, any interest in woodworking or in gardening or in husbandry, the ingenuity of these people. They were ingenious. And they did things that other people copied. So they were they invented things. So, you know, for example, the circular saw was invented by a Shaker woman. Yeah. Uh, she saw some of her brothers laboring, <laughs> and she had this idea for creating a circular, you know, saw blade. And that's and so she was she was inspired out of her love and concern for other people. But she was the, the flat broom, the clothespin, just lots of different things. Hmm. And uh, when you look at Shaker work, so for example, I remember going to the village in, in Canterbury, New Hampshire, and we were we were taken to the we were taken to the uh, the worship uh, the meeting the meeting house. And when we went into the meeting house, the walls were painted a very light, almost kind of translucent blue. And as I was looking at the walls, I thought, my, my, that, the, the, the wall, this, that paint looks good. And the, and, the, and the tour guy said, that paint is 150 years old. They, and they invented their own paint. And he, she's, and he said, if you go outside and you look at all of the, the fence posts, those are the original fence posts. So you, 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 you would go through the village and there would be, you know, thing after thing you'd see that would impress you. And I remember being in the Hancock Village in, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and we were in the workshop. This is like a woodworker's dream. There, there are lathes, there are band saws, there are circular saws, there are drills, all this kind of stuff. This is all before electricity. It's all powered by, by leather belts from a single water-driven dynamo. And at the, when we went in, there was nothing, nothing working. And then the, the tour guide said, now watch this. And he just pulled a, <laughs> pulled a lever and everything in the workshop just came into, to, to, you know, into action simultaneously throughout yeah. the shop, like 10 different stations, tools. And it was marvelous, yeah, I'd say. Yeah. This, the, so it was all driven by, and this dynamo was just the way, I looked into it, I saw how it was designed, I said, that's brilliant. And so one thing after another. So what's behind that? What, what was it about their belief system that helped that to come about? I have some thoughts, but do you guys have any guesses? 
I would say Freud would have a field day with that one, but yeah. um, I'm not sure I really want to go there. Actually, one of the one of the people in the documentary that Ken Burns had made said that very thing. He didn't use that, but he was talking about sublimation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think sometimes you would see the kind of early formations of of liberalism and progress tied to eschatological visions. There you go. And so I don't think they had to be at odds, even if they were very otherworldly. They hadn't moved in the full Kantian sense of moving the, the heaven down to earth, but they, they were definitely um, involved in, in um, their heavenly vision did allow them to, to build things of permanence, which is a, you know, even if it went against maybe some of their no, that was actually their thing. They were yeah. definitely not. They were definitely not premillennialists. Yeah. They were actually over-realized postmillennialists. Yeah. They believed that heaven had come to earth in Mother Anne. They believed that they lived in the New Jerusalem. They were building things to last. And I, and I do yeah. think this is kind of one of those stepping places where you could see how a lot of these movements stepped over into a kind of what Charles Taylor would call a completely exclusive humanism at a certain point. Right. Everything's bound up within within the this world, but this is like an in-between place. So you have an yeah, yeah. overemphasized view of heaven um, still permeating the earth, um, but it doesn't hold the classical Christian tension and balance. It, 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 uh, and yet you still get some of the beautiful things that will come whenever you have this kind of focus. I mean, I, I think that that's the thing, is you can overemphasize something and distort it and lose it. I have no idea what that is, or whether we have to continue to live with it. Oh, no. Well, uh, that uh, interruption that happened a little while ago has uh, disrupted our show, but we're gonna we're gonna press on because we are the theology podcast, and we're used to loud noises and <laughs> and interruptions. Anyway. We're not going to be back at Illicit Brewing anytime in the near future. <laughs> but we're going to try to finish up the show. And there were a couple of things that I thought would be good to, to wrap up with. And as uh, Glenn and Tom and I were talking a little bit about the subject today, uh, particularly uh, certain features of Shakerism seem to have their parallel or parallels within contemporary evangelicalism, particularly amongst younger people. So I know, know that you have a few thoughts on that, Glenn. Do you want to sort of run with that a little bit? Yeah, well, one of the first things that, that comes to my mind is that there is an obvious connection, it seems to me, between the, the celibacy of the Shakers and the tendency among a lot of young people today to even if they get married to to not want to have children right you know there's this there's this um there's this sense that somehow having children interferes with your life or something like that and it, this allows you to devote more time to your career to to your work to travel to all of those kinds of things and in a lot of ways i suspect that there is a similar though spiritualized dynamic in the shaker communities right. where they are seeing the the celibacy and the separation of the sexes and things like that in terms of 
uh, the ability to focus more intently on uh, the kingdom of God or something along those lines. Right. I mean, it seems that, to me that there's a parallel there. Yeah, we have you know, sort of like Paul's argument for apostolic celibacy, uh, which led to sort of the medieval understanding of the celibacy of the priesthood, sort of combined in a weird way with the, the Reformation's understanding of the priesthood of all believers. Right. So, so you have in Shakerism, you know, the priesthood of all believers, which means that we all need to be celibate. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, in, in the modern world, uh, there's the idea of, you know, the Catholic Church, a vocation means you're called into the clergy. Right. In the Protestant world, because of the priesthood of all believers and the sense of, um, you know, all callings are sacred callings, um, you can view your job right. uh, as essentially, well, it, it is a sacred calling, yes, but it, you can turn it into the center of your entire life. Right, right. And so, so, you, and so there, then, you, as you point out, you bring in celibacy into that. So I can climb the corporate ladder for Jesus and eat at five-star restaurants in Manhattan. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a deal. Yeah. And and you also see here the tension between that we see that has grown in a lot of uh, modern Protestant thinking that has so emphasized the redemptive and the the redemptive at the expense of the created order and the restoration of created order and moral order. So you have a tension going on between what it means to live the Christian life in conflict with what it means to be a created creature. Right. And so this is where you have a, a tension growing that somehow being created in the limits of being a creature is in conflict with what it means to be redeemed and heading towards divinization. Right. right. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's puzzling about the Shaker phenomenon is on the one hand, the rejection of sexuality, which is so clearly, you know, integral to our flourishing in the world. And the Shakers, by the way, did breed their cattle. Right, yeah, that's the thing that I've been wondering about here. How do you square the right. idea that the fall is caused by sex right. while you've got, I mean, does that mean that animals are sinful? Well, I think that it could be. When you think about, say, for example, example, you know, Christian Science and Mary Baker Eddy, malicious animal magnetism. You know, with 19th century women, there is this sort of uh, uh, prudish, often kind of prudish uh, recoiling from the physical uh, dimensions of sexual, you know, of the, of the human body or the, the sexual, I should say, the sexual dimensions of the human body. Uh, and a kind of prissiness uh, and uh, sort of a disgust with uh, human secretions, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, and and uh, sexual appetite is something that's sort of seen as a masculine uh, sort of preoccupation. Uh, now, I don't know how much of that can be, you know, sort of laid at the at the feet of of really just bad church instruction in the 19th century and 18th and, and earlier. Maybe some some stuff that is even a legacy of medieval Catholicism that has sort of seeped into even Protestantism. Yeah, actually that's an inversion from medieval Catholicism. In medieval Catholicism, women were believed to be sexually obsessed and men not. Okay. So the stereotype is sort of completely reversed. Yeah, but that, well that's an interesting thing that would be good to think about. But I, I think you know what I'm getting at though, is, is sort of like recoiling from the physical 
And we see with, with a number of these 19th century sects and utop sort of utopian movements in the United States, uh, this equation of sexuality with, with pollution. Um, now, in the 20th century, the situation is quite different. You know, I think we have the influence of people like Rousseau, and you know, when we think about the hippies, getting natural means just you know taking off all the restraints. Yeah. You know, yeah. letting everybody just kind of go, you know, kind of run amok like at Woodstock or whatever. <laughs> but uh, speaking of that, you know, this the, the, another aspect of this that I think that's worth thinking about, particularly as we think about young people and sort of the the the, the recent infatuation with socialism. There's a kind of millenarian utopianism that I that I detect at work in that yeah. movement or in that that interest it's very much an American thing so I don't think that we can say that this is just some kind of you know sort of disease we caught from from the Frankfurt school or something yeah, you know? yeah. now I think there's a particular expression yeah you know with with that but I think that you know we can look at 19th century communal movements and see that it's pretty widespread longing, even with secular people. When you think about like the transcendentalists and so forth, the people who like Whitman and and, and Emerson and Thoreau and so forth, they, they were intrigued. They, they did their, had their own experiment in Massachusetts that was just a dismal failure. But, uh, yeah, I mean I, I mean, I think what you get there is you start to see the way in which this, this enlightenment the Enlightenment condition set the stage for a kind of Protestantism that could sever itself off from nature, creation, and, and, and the created moral order. And so what you do is you have something else. Oh, you have something else <laughs> fill fill that, that right. space. So right. it's the, the transcendental, or the feeling, or the experience um, starts to take yeah, take yeah, that, yeah. Take the place of what the natural, the created, and the moral took, had. Right. And right. what what we're looking at here is, you know, the the Enlightenment is usually referred to as the age of reason, but toward the end of the Enlightenment, someone like Rousseau is at the beginning of something that some historians or scholars call the age of sentiment. Yeah. Right. Or the age of sensibility. Yep. And That's... the the uh, idea there is that. I think in sort of a backlash against Enlightenment rationalism, you get the valorization of feeling and emotion over other, uh, other, uh, well, over reason. Right. So uh, this is going to lead you straight into the Romantic movement. Yep. Um, but it also, I mean, it's there as early as Rousseau, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that Mother Anne might have been influenced by that or might have been an early... Uh, Manifestation uh, of it. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Yeah. So. yeah, I think that's right. Well, I think we should wrap things up now, both because we've talked about it uh, quite a bit, and uh, we've got a lot of loud music playing. <laughs> so but, if, you're, if you're dancing at home right now, we won't think you're shakers. <laughs> it's because of the music we have. That's right, that's right. Right. But uh, sort of... Sort of for, for me, you know, the, the note on which I'd like to wrap this up with, the note, <laughs> is the idea that, is that, why, you know, like uh, Mark Twain said, you know, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense in which there's a kind of rhyme here in our time that I think has re uh, resonance with or, you know, uh, assonance with, you know, what was going on with the Shakers. Uh, this this uh, kind of anti-natalism, 
this utopianism, uh, this and and essentially the uh, the emotivism that uh, I think has swept through the evangelical world. So so much so that uh, you can't even talk about sort of natural order now. You can't talk about biologically, uh, you know, you can't talk about design even with even reformed people, even conservative reformed people. They shut down mentally when you do it. Uh, and, and they say that you're being extra biblical. You know, we, we've <laughs> talked about biblical minimalism, you know, before. But, uh, but it's, it's, and this is one, where, one place that's fascinating because now a lot of these progressive reformed egalitarians are using Van Til <laughs> because Van Til doesn't have any space for sort of created order or, yeah. or natural law plays in right, his thinking. It plays right into it. That was my big critique um, of, of a lot of that is it. It plays right into opening the door to this kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. So I think the sterility yeah. that we see with these people, I mean, literal sterility, yeah. is due to to some of this. Now, I think some of it has to do with the fact that we're in a very affluent world. You know, we, we live in a time of great wealth. Yeah. And whenever you have that kind of thing happen in the history of the world, we, we can see it. Yeah. Whenever there, we have decadence, you have childlessness you see it in Rome we can even see it in in in, in the Orient right now and in, in cultures that are have no Christian heritage to speak of they're they're not producing children and, and you've seen the, the impact of technology and, and shifting oh you've seen the impact of technology and shifting the the, the natural order in many right. ways so right. there is also that that kind of impact and so what you have going on there is a whole nother dimension of you know how does someone who who wants to kind of um, conform to the created order moral order do so at a time in which things are shifting so much they don't even know how to measure it right. and now we're back to one of our favorite themes yeah <laughs> which is the issue of um does the physical universe mean anything does right. our body mean anything is, is there teleology? Are there natural ends to what God has given us? Yeah, right. you, know, um, if, you know, it seems on the surface it should be obvious. Your lungs work really well for exchanging you know, oxygen and carbon dioxide and such. They're not so good if you fill them with water. That's right. Okay, or these days um, uh, e-cigarette vapor. Um, you know, uh, but yet we, we acknowledge that in all areas except in sexuality. We reject the biological function of our sexual organs, where we wouldn't do that with anything else. Yeah, and then the procreative itself, and the and right. The, right. The, yep. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's been a good show, except for the loud music, and it's time to wrap it up. This is uh, the Theology Podcast, uh, podcasting for the last time from Illicit <laughs> Brewing in Manchester, Connecticut. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye.